or are you are there rigid guidelines as far as you you being able to say I've got this identified and now we are a scale up. Is there anything within internally that's gotten you to that that junction? So I think it's exactly as you certainly allude to an imperfect measure. And if I'm really honest, hand on heart, I'm not so sure that I am entirely where I want to be from a scale up point of view for where I couldn't certainly in a highly predictable way suggest if you gave me $100 million, what that would turn into on the other side. And in many cases, you have some idea of if I put a dollar in in one end, out comes a dollar and 70. So now it's just a matter of me going out and finding enough $1 notes, which the more comes out on the other side. And I don't think for this particular venture that we kind of reach that, that inflection point just yet. Well, interesting. So I, we are now officially live. And for those of you just joining us, we've been talking with Dennis to pick his brain on what the difference is between a startup and a scale up and what it takes to get there. And it is an imperfect science and it is a matter of inputs and outputs. And so today we're going to spend a deep dive and it's going to be more of a fireside chat to to meet Dennis and understand his journey with X.AI and the learning lessons along the way when we're scaling. Now, this is the Scale Up Heroes podcast. You can get all of them at scaleupacademy.io. And today we are going to have Mr. Mike, who's going to run the conversation. I'm going to be taking notes. We're going to be um, really digging into hopefully getting some personal stories, some personal anecdotes, some metaphors, some similes, getting metaphysical, but at the same time, leaving everyone with some tangible expertise. Now, I'm a keynote speaker. I speak about this 313 thing. I'm all about keeping things simple. So I'm excited to see how complex we get, yet keeping it simple along the way so we can all learn. Mike, I'll hand it off to you. You can take it away. Thank you, Ryan. And uh, congratulations to all for the episode number 50. So which is almost the week number 50 that we are running the, the show. And Danny, it's a pleasure to host you for the second time and uh, yeah, we have decided a very good number to, to join the show. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks so, much for having me. So perfect. So we, we'd love to get to know much more about yourself this time, because last time you joined the panel, so this would be go much more deeper into your uh, journey, into your career. So tell us a little bit more uh, what happened behind X.AI and what was your journey uh, until here? So Here's the story that I've at least crafted for myself. And I'm very much aware of the fact that it might just be a story that I'm telling myself. And if you looked at it from the outside, you would see it differently. So uh, be aware or footnote and disclaimer applied already. But it's certainly a story for where we spent the last 24 years as entrepreneurs over five different ventures trying to extract value from data. And in the beginning where we ran a venture, mostly trying to extract insight from raw web server log files back in the mid nineties, we didn't do much with the data outside of just mining it and presenting it. When we took a next step for where we ran another venture, which we actually did out of Eastern Europe, we not only helped collect, store, and present the data, but certainly provided a platform where you could massage it. And we can talk about what that uh, kind of translates uh, into and had a good journey on that. 
And the venture thereafter was also not just one where we would collect, store, and allow you to massage the data, but we would inject our own recommendations for how we certainly looked at it. You can do your own uh, set of insights, but we believe as experts that this means this. And this particular venture, again, I would like to believe takes it one step further for where Excel AI, which is this intelligent agent, but if you just look at it from a data point of view, it's really one for where we both uh, collect, store, retrieve, and provide recommendations on the data, but we also take the action. So if you ask one of our agents to schedule a meeting, it's not one for where I'll tell you how you can do it and how I mind the natural language. It's one for where I try to understand what you asked me to do. I prepare some sort of plan forward and I take all of the actions without you participating. So certainly a 24 year long journey where we try to figure out to get more and more out of a set of raw materials that haven't really changed much. As that uh, two bytes I mined back in June 1st, 96, looks like those two bytes I mined yesterday in 2019. Interesting. So do you see that in the next 15 years, this would be another step in the journey for something even bigger? <laughs> That's a good question. I certainly see two things happening right now. One is the introduction of a new UI, and that comes along so rarely that we should be really excited. As in, I took my CS degree in the command line. My mom somehow got access to Word on some graphical user interface that we can call Windows. And my kids kind of grew up on some kind of touch interface on their mobile phones. And whether you kind of agree on those three particular UI paradigms, there's not been that many, but the one that's just about to arrive, and we can call that the conversational UI, might be one of the last UIs that we'll see. There might be one, perhaps two more, and that's the end of, I think, how I can certainly imagine us interacting with compute. So that certainly excites me. So that's one part. The other part is that Given a new UI, you tend to get a new set of opportunities, just like Uber doesn't really work well on your desktop. It works well because you have it on the go. So on the street, you can pull out your mobile phone and kind of uh, request some driver to arrive in the next couple of minutes. And if every new UI introduces a new set of functions, the conversational UI, if anything, allowed for the introduction of agents. And Without going all deeper, you know, I certainly really like this idea that we are now, for the first time, kind of moving away from software assisting us in doing a job into this new setting for where we're allowed to describe objectives. I said, what would I like done? Those objectives, at least today, are extremely simple. They're not as sophisticated as if I work with you and I could kind of tell Mike, hey, here are the things I would like for you to do when we... Uh, go to Europe and attack these three key markets, I can come up with a really complex objective and just assume you come back to me in a year having conquered Europe, right? But we're at the beginning of some setting for where the way we interact will move from being assisted to describing objectives. And that's certainly 
but we are trying to make work with edge AI where I'm not trying to give you a, a different type of calendar. I'm trying to at least, to the best of my ability, provide you an agent where you can say, hey, Amy, can you get me and Mike together on 200 Broadway first week of May when he's back in Manhattan for half an hour? Can you include Brad in his optional role? And that's a reasonably complex objective, but still so compressed that we might be able to solve it in 2019. So that's certainly one version of the future, but not so far out as you uh, asked for. That is always extremely difficult and you are uh, bound to be wrong, whatever you say. <laughs> Absolutely. Amazing vision. And um, yeah, so it was Amy, uh, and I know that you also have a very loyal uh, co-worker, which is Andrew, uh, who are helping us to kind of schedule our agendas. So could you share a little bit more about how it works for the ones who are listening to us and have never uh, iterated or interacted with you and Amy and Andrew? So who are Amy sure. and Andrew? So I certainly don't pretend to have had some sort of unique epiphany, but where I was the only one who figured out that there was pain attached to that of setting up meetings. I think we all know that that is somewhat of a fact and we figured out exactly 10 minutes out of college that that is uh, one part of your job. And the particular pain I'm talking about is the mechanics that comes along with say, me wanting to meet up with Ryan. I shoot him an email and as he receives that email, he'll quickly determine whether he wants to meet me or not. If you do want to meet with me, he now needs to start some sort of negotiation dance for where he'll say, you know what, I actually can't do next week, I'm traveling. And if you offer, we do the week thereafter, but it needs to be a Zoom call instead. I then receive that message and we'll do a little bit of dance on my end, look at my calendar and provide some sort of response. And we do on average about seven emails back and forth, about three and a half on each end. And once we come to an agreement, one of us will kind of uh, take it upon us and do the actual invite and get it on the calendar. And it's not that this is difficult. This is a fairly simple chore, but I think that's the key word. It's a chore. It's one for where surely I can do it. I can do a lot of shit. I can do the dishes. Doesn't mean that I really enjoy doing the dishes. But if that's my only option to get something to eat, I'll do it. If I'm a recruiter and the only way to speak to candidates is by doing the kind of negotiation dance, sure, I guess I'll do it. It's not the most fun part of my job. So knowing that that is a pain, where we arrive is upon having received that request or being about to suggest you meet up with somebody, you can simply CC in Amy or Andrew, they'll have, an email each and ask them to do a job that you would rather not do, such as, can you set up a screening call for Suzanne and I for half an hour next week? You click send and then you click archive. And that's important. You click archive because this is not your job anymore. And now Amy will receive that request, understand what you just asked her to do, remove you from the conversation, reach out to one or more participants, negotiate with them when exactly we're supposed to meet under the constraints that you applied, which was next week, but you could have said all sorts of things, and go back and forth with the guest, understand what's concluded, and upon conclusion, send out the invite. And again, 
from a feature point of view, not rocket science. So people will say, oh, so you schedule meetings. Yeah, you're damn right I do, a lot of them. But that's what we do. And I think if you really want, now I'm just going to go all entrepreneur on you, but if you really want to at least try to kind of latch onto the most successful type of setting in the startup world, what you want is maximum simplicity in offering and maximum complexity in how to engineer it. That is how you create some sort of mode for where no two guys out of my combinator can do this over the weekend, but every single customer immediately kind of understands it. So that's what we do, or that's what I've been spending the last five years of my life on. Got it. And congratulations, that's a really art uh, milestone to get to. And, and that's the next point. So as uh, leadership teams, entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs, there is so much noise out there. So there are so many things that we need to do. So, and I always ask this question, so how can we identify smarter in a smart way? What are the big rocks? So how do you know that this is a big rock? And so what were the main big rocks that have been executing and uh, what are the big rocks? I think that you already shared in, in, the, in our conversation, uh, what, were the, what are the big rocks for the future, but what were the big rocks in the past? What were the main milestones that you need to achieve and that you focused your team around them? Let me answer that on both ends. So, I'm certainly very convinced of meetings being somewhat of a constant, as in we might do more productive meetings in the future, one would hope. It might be easier to get them on the calendar. If I do a good job, yes, we would hope. But meetings within organizations are not likely to disappear. As in, that will be as true today as it will be in 2030. That is certainly extremely interesting because there's plenty of places for where the pain you're trying to solve is extremely true today, but it's not immediately obvious whether that pain will exist in the future. This seems to be a pain that will continue to exist given the fact that most knowledge workers, or really most workers in most settings, will need to meet up with other workers. That is interesting. Two, the other somewhat obvious insight was one for where a very large part of the pain was due to the fact that it's really a massive coordination challenge for where if I just had access to Mike's or Ryan's calendar, but since we don't work together, I don't, but if I did, it would be a little bit faster. Help if I also somehow had access to a resource that could kind of look at it on my behalf, then it would be just wonderful. That was very interesting to me, given that there's some sort of true network effect attached to what we do here, where whoever comes along, whether that be me or the guy behind me and solves it, he'll be able to solve it at kind of superhuman levels. So there are plenty of things for where I certainly don't expect those self-driving cars to be driving as humans. I expect them to be driving at superhuman levels. Just like I don't expect Amy and Andrew to schedule meetings at human levels, but to schedule them at superhuman levels. 
not as in they're willing to work 24-7 for a few cents, but the fact that they can do things that you and I just can't do. As in this very thing that I'm trying to solve will be solved in new ways. And once we do it in new ways, there's no rewind. There's no, I will now choose to go back. As in nobody's choosing to say, I'm not overly fond of email. I'm going to go back to writing letters. No, you're not. As in we passed a certain inflection point where that's not an option. And I think this might be the same. So there's certainly some of the big rocks on the kind of far out future. Now, in the beginning, the whether you would define that as uh, in your terminology as a big rock, it would certainly be one of those very first steps for where there's plenty of things which we can imagine as entrepreneurs, where both the, the pain seems extremely true, verifiable, the solution seems almost obvious, but it is not tractable. As in, you and me can certainly see that there is some benefit to having a base on the moon or a population on Mars. And I applaud people working on it. And I can certainly imagine how we would solve it without being a rocket scientist, but I can certainly assemble a set of thoughts where that seems somewhat doable. But if I suggest that Mike, Ryan, and Dennis We'll be traveling out Q1 2019. That's just not happening. As in, first of all, it's probably going to take us half a year just to get there. So that means we're going to ride in the next couple of months. That's uh, not something you can pull off. So our very first kind of obstacle, big rock thing we needed to kind of verify was one for where is this indeed tractable? As in, can this be? Done. Because if you really think about it, one of the things that we're certainly attacking here is the language universe. And language is just not a solved science. And given you're trying to attack something which is not a solved science, I am certainly very afraid of waking up one morning and having created a mini academic environment, which is not what startup is supposed to be and we're doing research for the sake of research, which could be awesome. Help, I'll spend 10 years on that. I'm not so sure my investors like that idea. So for us, it was very important that we very quickly, and I'm putting that in air quotes, within that first nine to 12 months, verified that it was tractable. And for us, just in closing, that was about being able to carve out that corner of the language universe that we existed, or that part of the universe that we can call the meeting schedule universe and say, we now know exactly what is within it and we can navigate it completely. Just like uh, if we want to use that self-driving car as a uh, continued example, that self-driving car is not going to create a model of the real world. That is obviously way too complex. So what it's going to do is going to create some sort of simple model consisting of cars and pedestrians and bicycles other kind of objects, but extremely simple. But it needs to be able to define it in full so it can navigate it. And we're in the same setting, perhaps slightly more compressed. And uh, that was kind of each end, if you will. Got it. And uh, it's curious what, what you are saying, um, that sometimes when we are thinking or building the future, 
we need to have two different kinds of mindsets and uh, which are the strategic thinking parts, which are people that are very good anticipating the future, visualizing the future or creating that future and people that are very good on the execution planning side, which is planning how to get it done. So it's a lot about direction, which is what I think, think more about strategy. And, and, the, and the second part is much more about execution. So it's about getting it done. And I believe that in your industry, uh, in your company, in your product and service, there is a lot of deep tech behind it. So it's very difficult to put together a team who kind of is able to see the future and at the same time is able to work on the present to make it work in, in the future. So how did you combine a leadership team? How, how did you put the people around the project in a way that it evolved from startup stage to scaling up stage uh, nowadays? So what, what were you thinking about? How do I will create this amazing team? I think that's what the world-class CEOs are able to do. It's, it's really, really difficult to first to identify what is the direction and second, what is the team? What is the vehicle that will get me there? So how do you think about it? Most startups, at least in my opinion, will take on one of two types of risks. You will take on some product risk, as in you're not entirely sure whether you can do what you set out to do, or you're taking on some market risk where you certainly believe you can do what you set out to do, but you're not entirely sure whether that will be adopted in market. I am very skeptical of startups who try to take on both risks at the same time, because then you're really in the deep end, as in you're not even sure you can do it. And if you actually get to do it, you're not even sure whether people would like to buy it. So pick one of these two. If, again, we use the self-driving car example, what you've seen is probably very few stories to the point of nil that suggest, oh, we are not entirely convinced that people will like these self-driving cars once they arrive. That is almost a given. So all of the conversation is about, can we pull it off? And if so, how long is that gonna take? And we are in the same bucket for where almost all of our customers, all of our leads, the market at large, suggest to us that if you provide us a fair price, will buy your product. Now, we don't know yet whether you can pull it off, but if you can, I will certainly buy it. So we're in this bucket here where it's a technical risk. So certainly knowing that provides you some guideline for the type of people you wanna bring into your organization. This can change over time, certainly, as you put things in place. But as we got started, and probably still to this day, to a very large degree, we are, working in this bucket. The one thing, if I were to pick one of the items that I've applied, was not uh, so much trying to hire for people who could see the future. I certainly believe that we had a very good idea of where we're at and where do we need to be. We're not so sure about the duration of this uh, journey. We're not even extremely sure about the particular path we need to take, but that is not what is up for debate. And I'm actually not hiring people to debate me on that. No, what I'm hiring people for are people who believe in a future as I believe in it. And then, and this is gonna sound really not scientific at all, 
who will be comfortably comfortable in the dark. And the way I work this, and you should really kind of take note of that. So instead of doing many of the traditional things you would do to hire good people, what I did instead was I wrote a half page pledge on the characteristics of the individuals I would like to hire, almost in the form of a poem. And this is where you're tuning out already, I can see. And that half page document, which you can find on x.ai slash pledge, starts out with this kind of ask for where I am looking for people who are comfortable in the dark. And we spent an unfair amount of time when we brought that initial team together on trying to make sure that we both understand what, the, what does that translate into. And being comfortable in the dark means that you are okay in working on some component today, not knowing exactly how that fits into the bigger picture, whether bringing this component to life brings you one step forward or potentially one step backwards, but it seems like the right thing to work on. So in that setting, most people are extremely uncomfortable. I say, I can't see what I'm working on making any sense. I can't see what I'm working on making any progress. I can't see us as a company kind of moving forward. When are we going to be there? Or how can you suggest we'll be there in two years from now? And all of the uncertainties and anxieties that comes from not having one of these extremely fixed plans for over the next 18 months, this is what we're going to do. But really just over the next three to six weeks, you will be working on this part. And you're just in the forest. But when will I be uh, getting out of the forest? I don't know. But I don't have much food. I know. We probably need to go hunt for some food along the way, aka money if you're a startup. And that uh, is not for everybody. And I spent a lot of time in really finding a team for where they would be, or certainly would seem to be very comfortable in the dark. And to some credit, five years in, remember this is tech, have my CTO, chief data scientist, first engineer, first PM, they're all here. Congratulations. And that suggests at least that we found a set of people for where they could uh, do those five years in the basement in the dark, which almost nobody are both able or willing to do. Sorry, really hopping on this particular thing, but, but that's the one thing, if I were to pick anything, that I think uh, have translated into a little bit of success on the uh, organizational level. I think that's a great deep dive into, and I've got kind of a question because I'm hearing uh, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I, I need a little bit more insight to this difference between the dark and defining in full, because you said you have to define in full. You have to really understand in order to be able to navigate yet. And this comes with, you know, the, the market risk, the product risk, the problem that's being solved, the adoption, all these things that you're really just saying you have to simplify to the point where it's so simple, it's just almost in your face simple, yet at the same time, you have this, the, the flip side, which is, I need you to have that as an understanding, but work in the dark. So my question to you is, 
the, the balance between getting people to trust the darkness, but I'm assuming you can only get to that point if you absolutely have defined in full where you want to navigate. So, so I think you hit the nail on the head. Those two things come together. It is nearly impossible to embark on a mission for where you are extremely unsure about the next few steps and you have no idea of where you're headed. Right. I'm not so sure I would participate in that. So the way to look at this, let's apply some other analogies. So uh, Ryan and Dennis somehow in their forties sign up to swim the English channel. We're gonna take it from England to France. There's been a few other people who's done that, but uh, we are not unsure about what we're about to signing up for. As in, we'll be starting at the shores of England and over the next probably two and a half days, we'll get to the shores of France. That's the mission. That's what we set out to do. We're not confused. We're not entirely sure about exactly how we're gonna pull it off. As in, sure, we've been to the pool, we've done 5K, this is a different beast. But we can certainly imagine it and we can start to visualize what the end will look like. So they do come hand in hand. And I think the only way you can do that basement for that long is if you can close your eyes and see the end. And that's how I think you uh, establish some of that stamina. No, that's great. And I think it, it just goes to the importance of that core messaging to make sure everyone knows the shore you're going to land on, but not to be confused by this blind faith in the darkness. So I think that's a really interesting distinction there that, that will fuel this type of growth. And uh, of course, you need to, and I think that it's, it's an amazing uh, analog, an amazing example that you've just shared about how to build a world-class team to really get solved a very big problem and providing a very big solution to a market that really values that solution. So that's the way you are able to build a, a legacy business in, in the future, but you still need to have the fuel to get there, right? So, and that's when cash comes in place. So when you don't have yet the revenues to fund uh, this kind of path, so how do you convince people who are very, uh, no, it's not say conservative because now here we are talking about venture capital, but we also want to de-risk uh, their own situation. So I will put money on this venture, on this team, on this CEO, Dennis. So um, how, how, can you, how can you also, and, and from your side, from the entrepreneur side, it's at the same time, I need to have again the right investors on my side, the ones who are comfortable in the dark, as you said, uh, to get there because I will not provide results straight away next year or next two years. So how do you select the best investors for your big vision, for your PAG? I certainly believe that any pitch in a setting like this should almost entirely revolve around the end destination, as in any investor which you speak to should be as excited to land on the shores of France post swim. And if they are not, then spend no time in talking about your training regime, the actual swim, 
the support team, and all of the things that you need to kind of put in place, talk only about the destination. And if you can find a set of people for where, if you and I, over the next five years, can get to this destination, would you be excited? If you're excited, then I can move backwards and tell you how I think in X number of steps, we'll be able to get there. And if you can at least see why those steps are plausible or why those particular steps seems like the most natural steps, then we can talk about whether me and my team are the better ones to execute. But we should come at the very end. You should first believe in the destination, believe in the set of steps or regime you put in place to kind of do those four or five steps. And then you should take a look and say, are those the very people which I can see do that? And we certainly had a very good idea of both what the end looks like, the four or five steps towards getting there, what each step or each milestone really in VC terminology entails, or big rock to use your terminology, because there is a big rock in each one of these steps where you need to kind of overcome this part and that becomes the indicator of having finished that particular milestone. A milestone is rarely if ever measured in time. It is measured in having delivered on some particular outcome. And for us, those have been quite clear in both our seed, A, B rounds on this is what we've hit. It is now time to kind of take the next step. And I would like to believe that we've found a set of investors and team around us that were willing to kind of embark on this journey. It is not easy and people certainly get nervous along the way and I fully uh, empathize with the fact that you've given me $10 and someday I would like not only the $10 back, but if you can give you another 20, given you held on to those 10 for so long, that would be lovely, Dennis. So I certainly uh, understand why people are uh, asking for proper accountability in those board meetings. But for the most part, they signed up for a longer journey. And uh, we still have uh, all of our existing investors and they've all been active participants from uh, beginning to yesterday. Just a disclosure for the audience, uh, among the investors of X.ai, we have world-class like Silicon Valley Bank, SoftBank Capital, First Mark, etc. And uh, if the numbers on Crunchbase are correct, you have raised it at $44.3 million uh, until now, correct? Yeah, wow. something like that. <laughs> so, uh, well done. Um, and of course, if we know what are the big rocks that are separating ourselves from our BAG, if we have this amazing world-class team to get us there, uh, if we have the fuel to kind of keep this team engaged and going forward, uh, now it's really about execution, doing the train every single day when you want to keep sleeping or stay in the bed because you are not motivated to go to the gym on that day. So how do you keep the morale and the motivation of the team to go to execution mode? That's a good question. And I'm not sure there's a single good answer because I think it might just be unique to the company and unique to the moment. I think there's no 
particular tool in your tool belt for where this is my motivation tool. Because if it was that easy, everybody would kind of pull out that particular tool. Ah, I'm going to add a little bit more motivation to my team. And it's nearly impossible uh, to do such a thing. So what you try to do is to figure out in the moment, what is the current sentiment? I say, what is the current morale? Certain days you are just high on some prior success. Other days you are slightly depressed on some failure. And I think you need to figure out both the particular element which you use to kind of motivate, for how long will that be intact? One thing, to just give an example, and I think we all have uh, multiple things we uh, go do is to pick some reasonably near-term goal so that you can celebrate in the delivery of that. And hopefully, if you deliver well on what you set out to do, the success of that, that provides some amount of dopamines that can kind of propel you into the next kind of motivational uh, step. And we certainly have certain kind of goals. I wouldn't say outside of company goals because we will set very traditional kind of quarterly kind of company goals team goals that are associated with the company goals, metrics attached to those we can measure whether we're moving forward and all the usual kind of stuff, which is fine. And uh, you should uh, at least try to put in place a particular set of processes that you can execute well against. But next to that, we will also sometimes, and if I take the last one, or one of the last ones, which was a kind of relaunch of positioning, relaunch of pricing, relaunch of a set of features, which we did on 1010, uh, even kind of pick the date. Any person here on 200 Broadway who you would ask, what was the last kind of major thing would pick that 1010 launch as a particular one. There was uh, a little bit of extra work. There was a little bit of, uh, you know, extra willpower that you needed to kind of apply, but it's one of those that we worked on for four and a half months and it was slightly separate to the company goals, but everybody kind of remember that as a kind of longer sprint, a motivational moment for where shit. So we kind of cut our churn by almost 70% as in we fucking killed it. And that joy of having kind of delivered on that works really well. It's obviously a risk for where you could also stumble and what was supposed to be a motivational step turns into a punch in the face and you somehow need to kind of uh, take that into your calculations. But that is certainly something that I've seen work. Pick these particular milestones or goals independent of the slightly more corporate ones that you set. Got it. And um, I would pass the last topic, which would be using your example, uh, even a little bit more difficult, which is imagine that you were crossing the Atlantic from the UK to the US and part of your team would be in the UK and another part of your team would be in the US, another margin kind of pushing you to come 
to, to the coast. But let's keep this topic for another conversation. And then if you are invited to join us again, because it's always impossible to compress all the wisdom of our guests. And um, so I would ask you our traditional question to close the show before passing the word back to Ryan. We'll officially, of course, close the show. Sorry, Ryan. Uh, which is, um, if you would have the opportunity to meet Dennis, five or 10 years ago and have a very frank conversation with him face to face. So uh, what would you tell, tell him? So what would you say, come on, you could have done so much better or I'm proud of you. So what would you tell him? Here's a, a funny anecdote and I'll, I'll give you an answer as well. So I'm one of those, given I spent my whole life around data, that have kept all my emails. So I have emails for the last 23 years. So you, me, Ryan, don't keep diaries, I'm sure. You might, but I don't think you do. You no. should though, but what I've done instead is I kept all my emails. So some days I'll have a uh, Red Bull and I'll go back and I'll look at a set of emails I wrote, say, 14 years ago, 17 years ago, four years ago, some little kind of pocket of time. That is exciting, I tell you, because there's two set of emotions. One, what a clever young boy. <laughs> Dennis, you are special, just like your mom told you. Then there's the other emotion for where, oh, that is embarrassing. Was that all you could assemble? That is not even a sentence. It's not even Danish English. What is it that you're trying to communicate here, Dennis? Come on. <laughs> and that is extremely fun. Uh, if you have the opportunity and haven't kind of thought about it, pick 30 minutes on some Saturday, pick some pocket of time and some venture where any week will have some particular problem that you're working on. And you can kind of follow the dialogue. And I'll guarantee you that you'll both be uh, very impressed with yourself. As in, let me forward this to my mom. And two, very disappointed. As in, I need to delete this. It needs to not even be in the Google archive. Those are the two things. So uh, having said that, that's a good little uh, fun exercise. The two things I might tell myself if I could travel back in time would be one, once you inject that new layer into the organization. So that's certainly what I find the hardest. Doesn't mean that it is the hardest, but certainly what's been the hardest for me as an individual, when you inject a new level, that could be that very first level where it's just five guys in a garage and you get investors, that's a new level. That could be a hundred people and somehow you need to have a new management level which you inject and we're now one level deeper. But once you inject that, I think sometimes I've been too quick to abandon the level below that used to kind of report into me and then take charge of whatever new level I'm now in charge of. I'm not so sure that is right. As in, we were married yesterday and just because we reorganized doesn't mean that we can remove whatever set of emotions were attached to that relationship. That is one thing I would uh, have in mind. 
not that you should uh, sabotage or circumvent whatever new organizational structure that you just put in place, but you should figure out either some skip level one-on-ones you put in place and all of the usual kind of tactics you can apply, but don't abandon it too quick, if that makes sense. Two, and this might just be more on the product end and uh, where my background comes into play, forever stick to the pain and don't ever fall in love with the solution. Fall in love with that pain. It is so easy if you're just a little bit uh, geeky to fall in love with your solution. The solution just doesn't matter. The particular pain you're trying to remove will forever be true. Your solution will change seven times over. So just don't really care about it in the sense that you need to kind of keep that alive or intact. Don't. I think those will be the uh, two particular items on that list if we could send that back in time. Thank, thanks so much, Dennis. And I think that's no better topic to bring the world back to right. <laughs> <laughs> that's true because I tell people all the time, I don't care what you do. I care about the problem that you solve. And in fact, I challenge anyone listening, next time they're asked, what do you do? Just simply say, well, it's not really what I do that's important. It's the problem that I solve. And that is evergreen. That, will, that is what will connect people. So for, for those that didn't join us at the top of the show, this is what the notes looked like before. And this is what they look like now. So we have uh, basically thoughts from my mind. And here's the big rock that we're pushing up the hill. I can spend 45 minutes recapping, but because three is a magic number, I'm going to recap three of my favorite points. And I really think it sums it up. Number one is this idea that you have to have a crystal clear identification of the shore in which you will land on when you are done with your journey. Now, that is not to be confused by getting to that shore, making sure you have a team that is fine with not understanding the exact process. And I think that... Um, this really ties into my third point, which you made about market risk versus product risk or technology risk. So if you look at those three, right, setting these big, audacious, hairy goals that are realistic in the fact of where you're going to end up, but not necessarily specific on the journey that you will train to get there. Making sure that at the same time, you're, you're judging this balance between the technology risk, will it work? or the market risk, will it be accepted? And so it comes down to the training team. It comes down to getting people on the team first and then teaching them where they want to go. And those three things together, knowing where you wanna go, bringing the right team that's okay with not having a clear path to get there, as well as juggling with this risk of technology versus market, it all encompasses on what I think is one of the biggest takeaways, which is if you are pitching investors, don't pitch them on the training. Don't pitch them on the process. Make sure that they want to be waiting for you with the cheers and the, and the celebration at the end of the shore. Because if you can't sell that end vision, if you can't sell the fact that you're going to solve a problem and end up on that shore, then it's all for naught and you're just wasting your time. So I think the more you can empower yourself by knowing where you're going, selling that as a mission and not worrying as much about pitching how you get there, then it's all a reverse engineer from there. So lots of great stuff to digest. And and if anybody watching here has noticed the energy in which is coming out of Dennis's mouth, there is no doubt that he's excited about what he does. And you didn't talk about your energy. We didn't talk about, well, I mean, the Red Bull obviously is helping here, but it, just looking at it from outside perspective, 
you can't run a company from a startup to scale up without that passion, without that energy, without being on the front of your seat. And at the end of the day, it's because he is in love with solving a problem. So my challenge to you is find the problem to solve, fall in love with it, know where you want to go, but don't worry about getting there. If you have the right team, you will get there. <laughs> That's what I have to say about that. Awesome. I'm sold. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. All right. Red Bulls all around. Uh, keep pushing those big rocks up the hill because those rocks in turn become the motivation to keep people to keep going. So here's another example of lessons learned on that scale up path. Uh, wherever you're at in your journey, remember that's exactly where you are. Continue to tune into these podcasts. We can help you move those rocks up the hill. Find other podcasts at scaleupacademy.io and we'll see you every week around the same time. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is a wrap for number 50. That is right, five zero, and we are only going to keep pushing up the hill. So thanks again for your time, Dennis, Mike, for your leadership, Thank you, Dennis. for everybody Thank you, Ryan. solving problems. <laughs> All right, we'll see. We'll see you, everybody. Adios. Bye.